Right, all right. It's Real Life, Real Equity with your hosts, Justin and Keisha Brooks. Welcome to the show. Our goal is to share with you real life examples of entrepreneurs who are winning in both life and business. As real estate investors, our mission is to model, educate, and inspire you to act by sharing easy to implement tools, ideas, and information to add more worth to your net worth, more cash to your cash flow, helping you achieve your goals in less time. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Real Life for Equity Podcast. We are super excited about our guest today. He is the founder and CEO of Premier Law Group, a premier boutique securities law firm. As a nationally recognized expert on private placements, he works with elite entrepreneurs who seek to increase and protect their wealth through syndications. He specializes in Reg D exempt offerings and educates investors from around the world on how to navigate the complex world of securities laws. Known for taking complex matters and making them simple to understand, he is sometimes jokingly referred to as one of the few lawyers who actually speaks English. He regularly travels the U.S. as a noted speaker to business groups. Twice a year, he joins Ken McElroy and the Real Estate Guys to teach a few hundred students the secrets of successful syndication, a comprehensive course on raising capital for entrepreneurs. He also shares a stage with the likes of Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Tom Hopkins, Simon Black, Peter Schiff, Chris Martinson, and other prestigious faculty members on the annual Summit at Sea, a week-long, high-level summit with elite, like-minded real estate entrepreneurs. With almost 20 years of experience, he has previously been selected as Southern California Rising Star by the Southern California Super Lawyers Magazine, recognizing him as one of the top 2.5% up-and-coming lawyers in Southern California. He is a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley, and is a graduate of Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, where he obtained his Juris Doctor degree. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce to you our guest and good friend, Mauricio Raul. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. No problem. We're super excited ourselves. This is our first time we have had, one, an attorney, and two, a <laughs> securities attorney. So it's like double it's uh, the fun for us, I mean, <laughs> Uh, being real estate investors. So we get to learn about, and for our listening audience too, if you've ever had questions, this is the time we're going to allow you to experience the full-blown power of listening to an SEC attorney who's not boring. Yeah. So. First of all, I'm so sorry that you have to deal with the attorney, number one. Uh, but number two, in order not to scare away your listeners, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm not your typical attorney. In fact, a lot of That's people right. call me the anti-lawyer. Uh, because I do like to sort of take these complex matters and simplify them. And my good friend Tom Wheelwright always likes to say I'm one of the few lawyers that actually speaks English. So hopefully it won't be too boring. <laughs> right. And I agree 100% wholehearted. So uh, let's kind of go into the non-attorney stuff. Let's talk about the, the human behind the attorney, if you would. Talk about who you are, where you came from, and a little bit about your family and, and business. Yeah, so I'm originally from Santiago, Chile. So I'm Chilean, but born, and, and I left uh, Chile when I was about two years old, and uh, we, we went to England, uh, of all places. So I spent the first eight years of my life living in England, and that's kind of was my, really my first language, was that British Cockney accent. Uh, got some really funny home videos back in the day when I was eight, nine, ten years old with my younger brother, telling some silly jokes and just really having a really thick Cockney accent, which people like me to sort of replicate, but forget it. There's no way I can pull that off anymore, even <laughs> if I try. But um, so I spent, uh, like I said, the first, you know, eight, eight of my first 10 years were in England. And then, you know, my dad was always getting homesick. He, he was a doctor by trade, always tried to come back to Chile. And 
you know, couldn't, couldn't really, there was a lot of pol political things going on back there. So it was hard for him to find a job, even, even as a doctor. And so we kind of went back and forth between England and Chile. So my youth was spent, you know, kind of crisscrossing the continent, uh, the pond, as people like to say, and uh, which was good. I mean, I got a, a lot of great experiences, obviously, in living in a foreign country, experiencing other cultures. And then about, well, not about, exactly 31 years ago, last a couple of weeks ago, so June 9th, uh, 88, uh, we moved to the U.S. And so I was 15 years old. I came to the U.S. and, uh, and I was in high school by then. And, um, you know, actually at that point, it's kind of funny. I didn't, I knew, I, I, I remembered all my English from my days in England. So I understood English 100%, but my vocabulary wasn't there. So for the first couple of weeks, I had a hard time speaking English, actually. Two weeks into it, I got the hang of it. And uh, I think I, I got here young enough that I was able to lose whatever accent I would have had. Uh, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of South American kids come to the U.S. Uh, and, and retain that accent. But I think by me having spent so much time in England, and then um, coming here to the U.S. and being young, most people tell me I don't have a, any accent whatsoever other than probably a California accent. And, uh, and then when I'm down in Chile, I'm fluent in Spanish. And, and when I speak in Spanish down there, it's, it's difficult to, to, to pick up that I'm not Chilean. So I've got the benefit of having those, those two languages going. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. So you were born in Chile, moved to England, moved back to Chile, and then moved to America. Yeah. It's very cultured. And I didn't know that about yeah. you. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's great. And I remember it being such a great that I, I wanted to kind of, when we have extended that experience to our kids. So I've got two little girls, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And as you know, just we spent uh, two, two and a half years living in Belize uh, a few years ago. So yep, again, having my girls, yeah, having my girls experience that, you know, I continue it's got to be something in my DNA because I continue to move around quite a bit, even even after moving to the U.S. You know, it's rare for me to stay in one location more than a couple of years. So even in the last five years, I've moved around, you know, after after being in Southern California, I went to Austin, Texas, lived there for a couple of years. That's right around the time I met my wife. And, and that's when we got married while we were in Austin. Then we moved down to Belize for a couple of years, moved back to the States, lived in Arizona and Scottsdale for a year. And then now finally back here in the, in Southern California, which to me is home, and I'm one of the few uh, of moving back to California as opposed to everybody going the opposite direction of leaving California. But um, I love it out here, and it's expensive. It's got some issues. This is home for me. Our good friend, mutual good friend Russell Gray says, "Live where you want to live and invest where the numbers make sense." So right. I would say, right. you know, you're right on on track with living your version of the American dream. With that being said, let's let's kind of tr shift gears a little bit. Tell us about what inspired you to be an entrepreneur. Talk to us about your why, and specifically in, in the attorney space. The second one's more interesting. The, the attorney space, honestly, I don't have any brilliant uh, explanation or, or great story. I, I honestly didn't know what else to do uh, on the attorney side. And so, you know, I, I did my undergrad work up in, at UC Berkeley and uh, honestly just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I just was kind of on this path to going down the legal path just because I had some of my close relatives were lawyers and I'm like, that sounds good. You know, had a political science degree, which wasn't going to really take me anywhere. And so I, I remember at some point right before I graduated and I had to start studying for the LSAT, which is the, the exam, the prep exam for, for getting to law school. I had that inflection point. I was really interested in real estate. And I was back then, remember those guys in the late night TVs, the Carlton Sheets and the Tommy Woos and all those guys. And I was really enamored with that was thinking about doing real estate, but at the end of the day, just kind of the, the momentum and the gravity just kind of kept me through doing the, the law thing. And, and, I, and I don't regret it. It's been awesome. So the first thing I did was I went to work for a law firm, a really large law firm here in Southern California, and lived that dream for a while. 
you know, it's a great firm that I worked on, very family oriented, which is unique and it's not common in the law firm world. But it wasn't something that I wanted to do. And, and that was key for me. I, I knew very early on that I did not want to spend the next 30 years of my life working at this law firm or any law firm for that matter. I, as I always tell the story from stage, I was in that, what now I know is the rat race, but back then I didn't know that that's what it was called. But I would you know, find myself getting up, crack it on and you know, jumping in the shower, getting dressed, hopping into my car, driving to work, getting to work, working all day, and then coming home and, you know, maybe going to the gym, have a little something to eat and then go to bed and then do it all over again. And even worse, you know, I had it going on the weekends and I would see partners that have been there for years and years and years who I knew had families, you know, four or five kids, and, and they had signed in on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m. because, you know, when you, when you go in on these buildings on a weekend, you've got to sign in. So I could see their names or what time they checked in. And I'm like, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be 50 years old, 60 years old, having to come in on a Sunday morning to, to crank out additional work. And so for me, the, the big pivot point in the entrepreneurship and the why was really helped by that little purple book, which obviously I think a lot of your listeners have been impacted with, and, that, and that's Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that really, you know, just, again, it's all context. It just answered a lot of the, not answered a lot of questions, but it just made me realize I was just agreeing with everything. I, was, I kept reading that book and saying, yes, yeah, that's right. There's more to more to this than just working your butt off until you're 65 and then retiring and living the rest of your life in retirement. And so that was a pivot point for me. And, and that really was, was a driving force, the beginning of the driving force to, to sort of leave the law firm life and, and kind of do something on my own. But then as, as time went on, I, I really got the entrepreneurial bug because it just, I saw the freedom that it provided me and the security that it could provide my family. And, you know, me being, not being able to stay in one place for too long and wanting to travel all over the world, uh, it also provided me that opportunity to sort of travel and, and do it from anywhere I wanted. So it kind of all started with that little purple book. And, and now it's, it's, it's got to the point where, you know, I'm still struggling, as, as most people are, with this work-life balance. But it's provided me with much more freedom than if I continued working at a law firm job or any corporate job. Um, I really, really enjoy what I'm doing and just really focusing, focusing these days on that work-life balance, as I'm sure a lot of you you guys are and listeners are where, you know, you're at work and you're feeling guilty because you should be at home with your family. And when you're home with your family, you're worried about work. It's just trying to focus on being present is kind of the, the current struggle. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. And so entrepreneurship brings those highs and lows, especially with the balance that you're referring to. Right. Right. So give us some of your highs and lows. What is some of the high points that you've had? And then give us some transparent low points that you've had. Well, the high points for sure is the freedom to set my own schedule and therefore spend time with my family that otherwise I wouldn't get to do, right? So if I was at the law firm, you know, I'd be getting home, you know, on a good day at 7, 7 p.m. probably because our, our hours were 8.30 to 6.30. So even if I was on schedule, I'd leave the office at 6.30, I'd get in my car, drive home, I'm here at 7. And my girls are, you know, in bed by 7.30. So I'd rarely right. see right. the girls and obviously in the morning wouldn't see them. So that's a high point for me. I get to, number one, work out of my home. I have a home office. I, I get to see my girls and my family and my wife, you know, throughout the day. You know, I'm popping, constantly popping up and down. I'm not one of the, one of those that just sort of closes the office and, and does the office hours, the normal office hours. So I actually get up pretty early. I try to do quite a bit of work before everybody gets up. And then I do quite a bit of work when everybody goes to bed. And that affords me that luxury of that middle time where I can spend a lot more time with my family, whether it's lunch, whether it's just popping down for a cup of coffee and hanging out with them for a little bit in between right. calls or between work. That's definitely the high point. And, and again, the freedom to be able to pick up my laptop and 
you know, go to the lake house or go here or spend, you know, or take a day off and go to Disneyland and I don't have to worry about my boss, you know, telling me that I can't do this or can't do that. So that's obviously right. one of the high points. There really hasn't been too many low points from the business standpoint, you know, maybe at the beginning of the career, I think the low point, at which, which I think most people experience too, and especially when they're thinking about making the jump, is just that, in theory, lack of security, right? So you've got your corporate job, you know that no matter what, you're getting a paycheck every two weeks, or in my case, actually, it was nice that we got a paycheck every Friday. So I just knew money was going to come in every Friday. When you start this journey of entrepreneurship, that's obviously taken away. And now, you know, the income is generated by your efforts. And if you're not doing a good job there, um, you know, your revenues can go up and go down. I'm, I'm kind of beyond that at this point. But that certainly was at some point one of the low points when you just didn't realize, you know, where's the next check coming from? And how am I going to, you know, pay rent or, you know, whatever back in the day? So I think these days things are fine from a business standpoint. Uh, as you may know, I had some health issues last year, which to me was certainly my low point in my, not only my career, but, but my life. Spent about eight months out of commission in and out of hospitals. And that's been a turning point for me as well, because it's made me realize that I need to make some changes in my business primarily so that if things like this happen in the future, things are taken care of. And, and, and when I say things happen, it's not me getting hit by a bus. That's actually probably a good thing in terms of everything being taken care of. It's the opposite right. where you kind of have some issues and you're kind of out of commission. And, and again, that's a low point because you don't have that income coming in from a corporate job or, you know, an insurance policy, you, you know, your income kind of goes, goes to zero if you're not out there doing the work and if you're the only guy doing it. So, so I've been building out my team, really working on having a self-sustaining business where I can leave the business and, uh, you know, it continues to run without me and hopefully one day will even flourish without me and, and probably better off without me where my employees can tell me to, to get out of the way because I'm the one probably slowing things down. Right. right. So talk to us a little bit more about the process mentally that it has taken you to not only prepare the business for it being self-sustaining, but the process mentally it takes to go from W-2 employee to full-blown entrepreneurs, because I think those are probably two of the biggest obstacles or hurdles any aspiring entrepreneur faces and any current entrepreneur faces. Talk to us a little bit about both of those. Yeah, I mean, I can just, obviously, my, on my personal side, uh, I'm, as I know you guys are, we spend a lot of time together doing these kind of things. I'm really big into personal, number one, personal development, and number two, setting goals. And so what I tend to do quite often uh, at a minimum on a quarterly basis, and these days I'm spending a lot of my mornings thinking about this, is, I, is you, you have to kind of take a step back and get out of that day-to-day -day grind, uh, which is really a challenge. There's a great book out there by Michael Gerber called The E-Myth, which I recommend people reading, which talks about you know, working on your business as opposed to working in your business. And I think a lot of people get so caught up, and I was one of them, you get so caught up in the grind of doing the, the thing, whether it's your own business or even corporate, that you just don't have the time to, to sort of step outside and take a time out and sort of think bigger picture. And, and that's really what I was doing when I was at the law firm. You know, the book, the Little Purple book certainly helped me, but I was able to sort of project into the future. And again, those, those stories of the partners signing in at 7 a.m. on a Sunday and just realizing, just taking a step back and realizing and making that decision that this is not what you want to do for the rest of your life. I mean, you can almost see, I, I could see the pain points that I was going to go through if I continued on the path and I could see the type of life because I saw these other people living it. 
I saw the other types of life. And so I think you have to go through that realization, whether it's an actual pain point, maybe you got laid off and it's kind of forced upon you, or it's something where you actively, again, just take some time out, take, take a vacation, or not a vacation, a staycation, go, go check into a hotel for 24, 48 hours where you're not distracted and just kind of get out your journal and just think about some of the stuff so that um, you can envision what your future looks like. And, and if, if, if what you're envisioning in your current situation isn't what you want, then the nice thing that you can do is you can actually make the decision to change and start taking some steps toward making those changes. So that's kind of on that, making that jump. And then of course, similar issue happens once you start. So when I started, you know, I transitioned out of, I was doing a lot of work for our good friends, Robert Helms and Russell Gray over at the real, the real estate guys. I was their general counsel. And right, right. I slowly transitioned out of that into my own practice. But again, I was stuck in that. I mean, at that point, it was like I was just trying to do whatever I needed to do to pay bills and get, get income in when you're starting a brand new firm. And again, you just get lost in the minutia and the details and you're so busy trying to do the work that it's hard to step back and kind of see, you know, you can't keep doing this forever. You know, you can't be a solo guy forever. You've got to start building a team. You've got to put processes in place. And to be completely candid with me, you know, if you went back a year ago, I was probably still in that, in that mode. I mean, I was, I was a solopreneur. I was doing all the work. Um, you know, I was, you know, pretty successful, but it was a, it was a grind and it was certainly taking away time from my family. The guilt there was, was extraordinary. And I knew that I had to do something different, that I had to change what I was doing. But again, you're so caught up in the day-to-day madness and not only your work, but also obviously when you're not working, you're with your kids and you're, doing the family thing, which I, which I love and is my number one priority, that doesn't leave that much time to sort of step back and think. But for me, the turning point for me was this, this thing I had, this incident, this medical uh, scare that I had. But a lot of people know that you have to, for example, you get your, your living, your wills and your trust and all those estate planning things in order, but people just don't get to it. You're, again, you're, you're just caught up in your day-to-day or you just don't want to face the reality that so you put it off and that's what was happening to me I was putting it off I knew I had to start putting processes in place I knew I had to start hiring a team you know paralegals lawyers assistants so that uh, I could get some help not only to scale the business but again if something happened you know or if I took a day off that you know the world wouldn't collapse medical care that I had uh, definitely pushed me into that and now as I came out of it I started that process of putting the team together I've actually grown substantially over the last six months in terms of just team members and then also starting to get those processes in place so that people can just easily plug and play. Wow. And that's really powerful to identify uh, both in taking the leap and then once you're an entrepreneur, really implementing systems and processes so that you're not the bottleneck or the key person in your own business. So again, you know, you don't need my commendation, but I, I still commend you for seeing that. And the E-Myth is a phenomenal book to talk about just that, the entrepreneurial myth. And uh, Michael Gerber did an excellent job of explaining that. What would you tell your younger self? Like if you were to tell your younger self 10 or 20 years ago, what would that be? Talk to us a little bit about that. 10 or 20 years. Let me first of all figure out what I was doing 10 or 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> so, you know, 10, 10 years ago, I pretty started my firm. So uh, I, I definitely kind of just piggybacking on what I just mentioned. I would have told myself back then, and I wish I'd done this, which is what I did, which I forgot to say, which is kind of a pivotal thing for me as well, is I ended up hiring a business coach. 
So I hired a coach to sort of help me and because that's probably the quickest path to breakthroughs is, is hiring a coach. Even the greats have coaches, right? Michael Jordan had a coach, greatest basketball player of all time, all, all the greats have coaches. And so I wish I'd hired a coach back then to teach me or show me the things that I should be doing in terms of setting up processes. Uh, because that's the key to really running a, a smooth business, especially if you're a solopreneur, having great processes in place, and then starting to hire the team. If I had done that 10, 20 years ago, I could only imagine, or I can't even imagine, honestly, I actually can't imagine what it would look like today. Uh, and certainly, you know, with my medical scare, it would have been a non-issue because I would have had, you know, attorneys and you know, people in place and a process and everybody would have known exactly what to do without me. And uh, it would have been, you know, we would have moved forward without a hitch. So I just wish somebody had, had suggested a coach or maybe, you know, honestly, maybe somebody did back then. That's the other thing that's important to realize is that, you know, what's that old saying is, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears or something like that. Right, right. True. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm learning now that, that people have told me in the past. It's not like it's some breath, you know, setting up processes. It's not, the, it's not the first time I've heard of this, you know, two weeks ago. I'm just in a place in my life now that I understand it. And so I can, and without understanding it, you're just not going to implement it. So now I understand the importance of it. And I just wish I understood that 10, 20 years ago, as opposed to, you know, six to nine months ago. Right. So that's a very powerful point. Getting a coach to really grow your business, grow your even your mentality as a person, because like you said, even the greatest of the greats have had coaches. Uh, Michael Jordan would not have been Michael Jordan without a coach. I, I think a lot of times we equate coaching to athletes, but there's a new book out called The Trillion Dollar Coach. And if you have not read this book, I highly recommend it. The Trillion Dollar Coach is, it was a guy who coached the founders of a trillion dollars worth of business, the starters of Google, the starters of a lot of different big tech startups in Silicon Valley. And um, so coaches are vital. Wow, what a really good episode. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. We get to learn the person behind the great Mauricio Raul, uh, founder and CEO of Premier Law Group. Coming up on the next episode of Real Life Royal Equity. For those of you who don't know, uh, it's not a syndicated radio show or it's not Seinfeld where you, you have a syndicated <laughs> TV show. So a syndication is simply the and provide that expertise and even maybe you have more time and you, you're willing to go to these seminars and learn the business and have to get that expertise. And then you can partner with someone who has the money. So once you've identified that you are in fact dealing with the security, as we discussed earlier, so you're now under the, you know, the, the security laws jurisdiction, then I'd like to say there's three things we think about. So stay tuned next week because we're going to go into part two of our interview with Mauricio Raul. Thank you for listening to Real Life Real Equity Podcast. If you would like to ask the hosts a question or be exposed to our podcast audience, visit our website at realliferealequity.com and submit a request. Again, that's realliferealequity.com. Or send us an email at info at realliferealequity.com. Again, that's info at realliferealequity.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week right here on Real Life Real Equity Podcast.